0: And I'm inviting you to what Paul experienced himself, and that is the good news that we have all the blessings of the covenant of David because of the true and better David, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the true king, who we crucified for a murderer to be released. And Jesus hung on that cross for you and for me to deliver you from your self-righteous strategies. And when you place your faith in his finished work, it is offensive. Because it's telling you that everything you've done doesn't count. Because what could count in comparison to an infinitely holy God? That Jesus opens his arms to you and says, Come, all of you who are heavy laden, come to me. And in my finished work, you will find rest. Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Presbyterian Church in Owasso, Oklahoma. Our passion is to show that grace changes everything in Jesus Christ by equipping you to rest in worship, grow in community, and rediscover your calling. To join our body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at trinityowasso.com. We will read verses 42 and 43. This is the first sermon recorded in the Bible of the Apostle Paul. And if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, you know that his name was once Saul of Tarsus. And Saul was a very famous Christian bounty hunter from the tribe of Benjamin, who also King Saul was from, who he referenced in his sermon, probably named after King Saul. And Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He knew God's word and he had given hundreds of Jewish sermons by this time in his life. Scholars think that next to Gamaliel, who was Paul's teacher, he was probably the up and coming most famous Jewish law expert. But in Acts chapter 9, as he's going to persecute Christians, Jesus appears to him, knocks him off of his high horse, literally, and tells him, Saul, Saul, asks him, why are you persecuting me? And Jesus appears to Saul on the road to Damascus. And he goes into the city. And there, Ananias and other Christians take this persecutor, once persecutor of Jesus, tell him about the gospel, and he believes. In three years he spends in solitude. We don't know What happened during those three years? The Bible is silent. But Saul emerges and comes back and meets with the disciples. And they receive him as one of their own. Having seen the resurrected Jesus. And having been called by Jesus to do ministry. The two requirements to be an apostle. And what you're about to read is the very end. Of his first sermon as a Christian. That the Bible records. And so if you're willing and able, would you stand with me as we read Acts chapter 13, verse 42 and 43. And as they, that is Paul and Barnabas, went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, they urged them to continue in the grace of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word stands forever. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Please. Continue in the grace of God. The resurrection of Jesus shows us two starkly different ways to live. And Paul's first sermon, at least his first sermon recorded in the Bible, illustrates the importance of understanding these two ideas if you want to experience freedom... Freedom from everything that the law of Moses could not provide. If you want to experience freedom, you must understand these two ideas. And those two ideas for the Apostle Paul are law and grace. At the end of the first sermon, the Apostle Paul urged them to continue in the grace of God. Verse 43. What is that? Well, grace... You've probably heard, if you've grown up in the church at all, G-R-A-C-E has been commonly defined as God's riches at Christ's expense. You've heard that before, G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. That God gives you the riches that you do not deserve, that Christ paid for in order for you to have. If mercy is God not giving you something you do deserve, then grace is God giving you what you do not deserve. That is grace. But if you're ever going to understand grace beyond a Sunday school kind of answer, you must first understand what grace means in reference to the law. And we think that the problem with the law sometimes is just a problem with the law. And there are some seriously crazy laws out there. For example, in International Falls, Minnesota, did you know that it is illegal for a cat to chase a dog up a tree? Still on the books. In Coralville, Iowa, it is illegal for children to open up lemonade stands in front of their house without a city permit boo, hiss. In Little Rock, Arkansas, it is illegal to honk your horn after 9 p.m. at any place where sandwiches or cold beverages are served. (laughs) In Memphis, Tennessee, it is against the law for a woman to drive a car, I kid you not, still on the books, without a man waving a red flag walking in front of her car. (laughs) And in Lebanon, Tennessee, it is illegal for a husband to kick a wife out of bed. But, the law says, it is okay if the wife kicks the husband out of bed. And as we look at laws like this today, we think, well, that's crazy. That's, that, that's it. We think the problem oftentimes is a problem with the law. Like there are some serious, silly laws out there. But in 1 Timothy 1.8, when you think about the biblical law, Paul says we know that the law is good if we use it properly or lawfully. And what he's saying is that there is a way to try to keep the law that is unlawful. In a way that doesn't really count. In in Jewish sermons of Paul's day, when you were to... And they just read the law and the prophets, it says in the text in Acts chapter 13... In Jewish sermons of the day, a Jewish scribe, maybe a Pharisee, or on on the day of Yom Kippur, the high priest would give a sermon. and, And when he gave the sermon or the homily, it would be all about what God has done. And then at some point in the sermon, it would turn and it would talk about God's law and how you need to obey God's law in order to please him and to be a true member of the tribe of Israel, of the people of God. And Paul's sermon follows the same pattern when it begins. Notice in verses 17 to 25, just in those short verses, 20 times Paul mentions God's actions. God did this. God put up with Israel. God delivered them. God was patient. God was faithful. God, God, God. It's all about what God has done. Is where the sermon should switch and talk if it's going to follow a typical Jewish sermon. And start talking about the law. What the law requires us therefore to do. But Paul doesn't do that. In verses 26 down through 33. He continues talking about what God has done. But look what God did. And God came and he gave us a Messiah. And Jesus. Even though we condemned him. God raised him up from the dead. And Jesus is the true and better David. Jesus is the true and better fulfillment of every Old Testament prophecy. It's there. And what Paul is trying to get at is that there is a way that Paul has used the law his entire life, that he, in this first sermon of his, he urges his brother's there in Perga, there in Asia Minor, there not far from where he himself grew up. They just left Barnabas' hometown and now they're close to where Paul grew up. These are his people. And he says to them, beware. He says, beware. What is he asking them to beware about? Beware, he says, of using the law to prove that you are can do what you, even with the law, can never do. Paul says that this law to which I've given my entire life is not able to accomplish what I once thought it was able to to accomplish. Notice, did you hear when, when Nathan read earlier, Paul says that through this man, that is Jesus, the Messiah, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Okay, I'm a good Jew. I get that. Thank you very much. And then he says, and by him, everyone who obeys the law will please him. That's, that's what they expected him to say, but he didn't say that. Paul says, and by him, that is Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Next word, beware. Lest you turn the law into something that was never meant to be. So, if we're going to understand what it means to continue in grace, we have to first beware of a couple of things. The first thing you have to be aware of, number one, is you have to be aware of our mistaken expectations of the law and thereby capsizing the law. All of us expect our moral goodness to provide for us a name, a reputation, a record, at work you're judged on this there's a code of ethics by which you have to operate within your field but in Christianity if you use the law to be the record of your moral righteousness you are dead meat and I'm not saying don't be zealous for the law you should be zealous for the law. Paul was zealous for the law. Jesus was zealous for the law. David said, Your law is like honey on my lips. Oh, how I love your law, O oh Lord. We should love the law. But what Paul is talking about here is a practical legalism of using the law to prove. Your own goodness, and it is your natural instinct and mind to use the Bible this way—to use rules to prove our goodness. It's instinctive. I when uh, I went to a, a Korean barbecue restaurant recently. Have you ever been to one of these where they have the hot plate in the middle of the table, and you sit down and like you learn pretty quick that you're supposed to cook your food you're supposed to cook your food at the table and this is like a really uh it's a it's a it's a a little bit of a jarring experience because you don't know the rules should i have brought my own meat do i do i order do i order raw meat what, do, I wanna, do, do I bring my seasoning from home that I use on my barbecue grill Like, well, how does this work you want to know the rules and once I start cooking once you start cooking on this skillet and there's the other people there can I take the guy's meat next to me that looks better than my meat can he still, which, which somebody took a piece of my meat and it became a forgiveness issue for me can you like, what do you do what are the rules and in almost every area of your life socially speaking you want to know what the rules are it's instinctive to want to know the rules so that you can operate by them. And I pursue this kind of righteousness in almost every area of my life. And it's not just social, it's deeply spiritual. For example, um, I was looking back on Facebook through my, through my Facebook feed through the years, and, and, and I remember thinking, huh, I got on Facebook very early in Facebook's life. Huh, these pictures of Lauren look good and of me look great. My kids look great. And I started looking through the way I've curated my life on Facebook. And I began to go, huh, Jesus, thank you so much for my great family. And, huh, I didn't put the week that we all got sick all week. When we were throwing up for 48 hours, and I gave it to my in-laws when they visited. I didn't put that week on Facebook. And I didn't put the week when I got upset with my kids and got angry with them and raised my voice and had to repent and apologize to them later. No, I didn't put that week. I had to kind of social media curate my life righteousness. And then what happened to me is I said, gosh, there's too much time. I'm wasting on this stuff. And so I got rid of social media. And so I went from like a social media, look at my beautiful family, look at us on these cool places and trips to like, oh, I don't do social media. It's from the devil. And then I found myself taking pride in a self-righteousness of like, yeah, I don't post. Last post, I was like, phew, 2016. Mm." I must be holy. And you see how subtle it is, friends? Like this is a deep pattern in my own life. And I imagine that I'm not alone. I make rules and I keep them to make myself look good. And that's what Paul is talking about here when he says you cannot be freed from everything that you sought to be freed from, from the law of Moses. And we need to talk about practical legalism in the church. Not just in this church, but in the big C church. Because some of you are here today for the first time in a long time to church. And I just want to say we are so glad you're here. But you know, when I ask people why they don't go to church, do you know what so many people often say? They say, well, I, I don't go to church because in the church, all the people are. You don't even need to be prompted, they're all hypocrites. And you know what I want to say when they say that? Yes, we are. Join the club. Because there's only one perfect person and that's Jesus and we are all fighting our self-righteousness all the time but the problem is we use the rules to try to prove our moral goodness and when we do that we're just setting ourselves up for failure you can't use the Bible to free you from what the Bible was never meant to free you unless you see in the Bible the beauty of the gospel think about your own life what are the telltale signs that you've fallen in to this legalistic moralistic righteousness how do we expect to get the law to give us righteousness that only the gospel of grace can secure for us well i'll give you one way we we pursue a need for credit that's one telltale sign you pursue a need for credit in my house when we wake up uh, in the morning oftentimes lauren makes it out of bed earlier than i do and she's out and she's she's you know doing her thing and I I roll out of bed and the other day I got out of bed and I thought, huh, man, it sure would be nice to have the bed made today. I know what? Who should make the bed? Well, Lauren, right? So so I make the bed and I put the pillows, and why do we have so many stinking pillows on our beds? Put the pillows on our bed. And, and I go about my day, and I, and I walk back through the bedroom later that day and go, huh, man, that bed looks really nice. And what's funny was, I, I, this is in Ephesians 5, serve your wife, you know, love her, you know, honor your wife. But I found myself three times that day talking about the fact that I made the bed. And it was just kind of self, moralistic self-righteousness in me. Like, I needed the credit. Like, I don't think anybody's noticed yet, so by the way, have you seen the bed, you know? That kind of subtle self-righteousness is what is killing my joy and yours. Or another, another telltale sign is not just your need for credit, but it is your defensiveness. Have you noticed this in your life? It is your defensiveness. You know, there's a, there's a command in scripture that says that we should study to show ourselves approved. And as a, a student of the Bible, it's important to me. I want to study to show myself approved. And I have, I have had for a very long time a Bible that I just loved. And it was a Bible that was well worn and tattered, and writing was all over it. And it was just, it was tattered. And you know how we do, you know, we kind of judge each other by. How worn is his Bible? That tells me how much he's actually read the thing. You know, you know you know, how this goes, right? You have a Bible, your favorite Bible, and it gets torn and tattered, and you've got writing in it, and, and you begin to subtly think that, you know what, I'm really walking with Jesus because I've got all these verses underlined, and I've got this Bible that's just, it is man, it looks like he got driven behind with a truck and it's just all tattered up. And it got rain on it one day when I was praying in the garden somewhere in my quiet time. And then, and then that, that, that psalm always is like, you know, a little messed up on the page. Like, you know, you know, I can tell, you know what I'm talking about. Well, one day, one of my really dear friends made me a Bible cover And she herself is an artist and she made this Bible cover and she she made it it was hand-done with leather and she stitched it all the way up the side it was like you can't buy this kind of Bible cover and she gave me the Bible cover and I thought oh this is such a great gift but people won't see how worn out my Bible is if I put my Bible in there and so I said thank you and I put my Bible in that Bible cover And I thought, well, I'm sure glad that that's out of my system and I can die to my Bible, worn out Bible cover righteousness. And about a decade later, after we'd moved to Oklahoma, I had that Bible and it it was pretty tattered and worn out. And I gave in and I bought a new Bible beyond my Bible righteousness. So I bought a new Bible. And uh, a couple of months later after I bought this new Bible, it was sitting on the kitchen counter, and, and we had a family over for dinner. And at dinner, I noticed that as we're praying for the meal, my Bible is over on the counter. And oh my gosh, you see, it's like gold. Like you see the gloss from the gold on the sides of the pages. And I thought, what are they going to think about my brand new Bible? And sure enough, the worst thing ever happened... This person was the son of a pastor and he glanced over and saw my Bible during dinner and he said, man, my dad's Bible was really worn out. And there was writing in it and you, it was just, man, it, it was just beat up. He read it every day. My dad really knew the Bible. And everything in me wanted to say, but it's a new Bible! (laughs) You should see my other Bible. And we do that kind of thing all the time. We are just defensive. Another way that you can tell if you struggle with legalistic righteousness is you have a fixation with comparison. Uh, There are, uh, in my neighborhood, I am surrounded by people with beautiful yards. And every weed that pops up in my yard is like a five-foot Christmas decoration saying, hey, look at me. And I have yard righteousness. I don't know if you struggle with this particular kind of righteousness, but I have yard righteousness. And the other day, my neighbor actually mentioned to me, whew, there are a lot of weeds this year, aren't there? And it's obvious which yard they're talking about because there is not one weed in their yard at all. (laughs) I had a, a friend of mine who wanted to talk and, and so we met together to talk and I could tell he was really a tender to the things of God and he wanted to, to uh, you know, he, he, he was open to, um, to some feedback in his life and it was part of the time together and I said, hey man, I just want you to know that one thing the Holy Spirit may be really um, dealing with you in is your critical spirit a really critical spirit, and it just comes off in in subtle ways that, I don't know if you recognize it, but um, uh, it's pretty bold, and I could tell it kind of landed on him as a friend, and um, he said, that may be true, but at least I'm not like the Baptists. He said, that may be true, but at least I'm not like the gays. That may be true, but at least I'm not like the president. And I said, bro, you're taking critical spirit to a whole new level, man. And he wasn't kidding. He was fixated on comparing himself. And you know what I thought as I listened to this? It didn't take me very long to have to fight the temptation to say, whew, Jesus, thank you that at least I'm not like him. If there's a telltale sign, it's a need for credit, it's a defensiveness, it's a fixation with comparison. Another telltale sign is there's a reputation fixation. I I think some, as people come back to worship, it's great to see people, isn't it? Isn't it great to see people? Some of whom you haven't seen in a long time. It's wonderful. And sometimes I wonder, you know, do, do I have enough, do I have enough, uh, you know, do I, do, am I the one that's bringing people back? To which we would all say no. And do I have enough preacher righteousness? Do I, do I have enough, do I have enough husband righteousness? And, and people will leave and, and they will say the kindest things sometimes to me or to Lauren. And, and sometimes somebody will say to me, good sermon today, Pastor. And I will think, what? What's the word that I only hear? What about last week? What about all the other servants? There were some sermons that were great and you weren't even here. But that's the kind of self-righteousness, guys, that we end up using the law to accomplish something in our life It was never meant to accomplish. And when we do that, it capsizes the law. It's like a boat that has been weighed down with more than it was meant to carry. And when you lose, when you use the, the law in that way, you lose the gospel and you, you lose the usefulness of the law at the same time. This is what Paul was beginning to get at in Acts chapter 13. Do not use the law as a way to judge your moral performance. Why? Because you're using it unlawfully. Not only must we be aware of our mistaken expectations and trivialize the law and thus capsize the law, but we also must be aware of using the law unlawfully through our misunderstood diagnosis of the law. We don't just look to the law to be our savior by giving us the credit, but we look to the law to be our Holy Spirit by giving us a comfort. We use the law by giving the law a power that it was never meant to have. We think that the law is how we're actually changed. If I believe the right thing, if I do the right thing, if I act the right way, then I will be changed. But guys, that is Not the way the law is to work. Don't give it a power that actually trivializes the law. In Galatians 3, it says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. If the law had been given that we might have life, Paul says, then indeed righteousness would be by the law. But he's implying, but it's not. And unless your true transformation change comes by your faith in the resurrection of Jesus, you are using your morality in a way that is just reshuffling the deck. You're giving a power to the law it was never meant to have. Lauren, for her birthday this year, wanted a Martin house put in our backyard. And so we bought a Martin house and, and I'm trying to use very common, like even like super recent illustrations this morning, just to show you the power of the self-righteousness that we all have. My own righteous self-righteousness that I use and abuse. And so we, so we bought this Martin house for Lauren, and we put, we put it together, and there's all these screws, we put it together, and made it up. and then we had to gulp, put it up. Which means that like, you gotta mix cement, you gotta dig the hole, you gotta find the right spot, you gotta put it at the yard. And so we made this martin house, gave it to her for her birthday, it was great! I had six months to get it up. And I saw the directions on how to put it up and I just looked at those directions. And I'd walk by and I'd stare at those directions. Hmm. Instructions of exactly how to put that martin house up on a pole. Did those instructions accomplish putting the martin house up on the pole? No, you still had to do it. And so often we look at the Bible and we say, well, listen, if I just follow the Ten Commandments, if I just am a good person, it'll count. Don't expect the law to have a power that it was never meant to have. You trivialize the law when you do that. Not only do we deny the law the power that it doesn't have, but honestly, we also deny the law the power It does rightfully have. Some of us capsize the law. Some of us trivialize the law. And some of us just minimize it altogether and ignore it. And some of us, practical legalism is not our issue. Our issue is that we have just a practical, self-governing atheism about our life. We don't care about God's law. We can do whatever we want. And no, the power that the law has is meant to drive you to faith in Christ. That's what Paul's point is. The point of the law in the Bible is to drive you to show that you can't accomplish it. But Jesus has. And guys, I'm belaboring this point because I think this is so important for us as a church to get, especially in Tulsa. Every one of us has a law that competes with God's actions for approval in our life. And Paul says it can't free you because you have mistaken expectations and it can't free you because you have a misunderstood diagnosis. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with the way that you use the law to earn your merit before God. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is a historical fact nailed to the pegboard of human history to give you a handhold to hang on for what is true and beautiful and good in a world that has redefined truth in every way possible. And there is an enormous difference between Christianity and moralistic religions like Islam or like Mormonism. But when you rely on the law unlawfully, you reduce Christianity to a self-improvement program. And that is not the gospel. Paul urges them to continue in the grace of God. So there is a desperate need in my life to remember how passionately Paul attacked the law keepers. Of which I am chief using the law to prove my moral goodness. And instead, he says, use the law the way it was meant to be used, to drive you to the empty tomb, to drive you to the beauty of Christ's resurrection, and to drive you to faith. Galatians 3.24 says, The law was given to us as a guardian as a lex patagogus naster in Latin, a teacher to drive us to the truth, to drive us to Jesus. And we are therefore to use the law as a result of what he has done if we're to find true freedom. So what I'd be inviting you to do today is to continue in the grace of God and the way that you do that is through Repentance. There's a repentance issue here. And I'm not just talking about repentance from your unrighteousness. I'm actually talking perhaps even to some of you more directly. Repentance from your righteousness. Resume repentance that you've used to show yourself a proof before God. By making the rules and keeping them and justifying it when you break them. And I'm inviting you to what Paul experienced himself, and that is the good news that we have all the blessings of the covenant of David because of the true and better David, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the true king, who we crucified for a murderer to be released. And Jesus hung on that cross for you and for me to deliver you from your self-righteous strategies. And when you place your faith in his finished work, it is offensive. Because it's telling you that everything you've done doesn't count. Because what could count in comparison to an infinitely holy God? That Jesus opens his arms to you and says, Come, all of you who are heavy laden, come to me. And in my finished work, you will find rest. So friends, Resurrection Sunday, I urge you to continue And the grace of God. And this application is as simple as it is profound. Where is your unlawful law keeping? Keeping you from the joy that you so desperately want. And through repentance and faith, you can begin to have it. But it's going to come through some honest self-assessment. Social media, making the bed, the way you drive your car, your own... Method of works righteousness that is reminding you yet again that you may use the Bible and Christianity and the law for what it was never meant to accomplish. It was always meant to drive you to Jesus. And in the light of Jesus' work for us, should we love the law? Yes. Should we follow God's law? Yes, and amen. Should we walk in holiness? Absolutely. But your only hope for doing that is if you first find the foot of the cross as the place for your repentance to give you the power to do that. So on this Easter, as you come and you all look very beautiful and nice and handsome, by the way, especially those guys that are wearing pink shirts, walk in humility, knowing that your righteousness is in your King Jesus, who rose again from the dead on the third day, And he is the one who offers you forgiveness of sins and a righteousness that you cannot earn. And and that is the freedom that you crave. And for some of you, it may be this morning is the first time in your life when you said, I want to repent not just from my bad deeds, but from my good deeds that I use to prove my worth before God. Wouldn't that be amazing? on Resurrection Sunday where you could place your faith in Christ for the first time. You'd be surprised how many people in the city think they're Christians but have never understood the gospel because they have misused the law their entire life. And they, of all people, should be pitied. So let us run to the cross together and let us do it in a church where we know that the only perfect person in this place is King Jesus. And He welcomes us, despite all of our messiness, with open arms of grace. Continue in the grace of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Trinity, please visit our website at trinityowasso.com.